you know, we, we sometimes talk about, you know, how do you explain the brain or how do you explain cognition as if there's going to be, you know, one answer to that question. The original project of AI was along the lines of, like, we don't have any idea how intelligence works or how thinking works, but if we could make something that thinks, that would tell us something about how it works. And that's kind of playing on like an older idea of of what an explanation is. If we could um, have a better understanding of kind of the differences between explanation in these different fields, that that might inspire um, new ways of explaining in a kind of unified science of intelligence. It's very easy before you've actually tried doing it to, to criticize the approaches that people are taking in the lab, but then actually trying it yourself and nothing working for you know years and then realizing that the, the way that it's actually done in the lab is so much harder than it looks like. Maybe all philosophers of science, to get their degree, must spend some time in a lab to crush their spirit. That's what needs to happen. <laughs> this is Brain Inspired. Hey everyone, it's Paul. Today is a mostly philosophical discussion about explanation and understanding. Uh, Understanding brains, understanding minds, understanding the uh, deep learning models that we use these days often to model brains and minds. So I have Catherine Stinson and Jessica Thompson on today. Catherine is an assistant professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Um, These days, a lot of her research is on ethical concerns in philosophy, but she's written and thought a lot about how to connect the philosophies of both neuroscience and AI. And Jessica recently began a postdoc, really recently, in Chris Summerfield's Human Information Processing Lab at Oxford. You may remember Chris from a recent episode with Sam Gershman. I want to say that was episode 94, but anyway, it was recent. So I brought uh, Catherine and Jess together today because... Both of them have written papers recently that are about bringing together the notion of explanation in neuroscience and in AI, and the problem or the the challenge of using modern tools like deep learning to explain and understand how brains produce cognition and minds. My original goal was to bring their ideas together uh, and explore what I found to be a common element between uh, those main ideas in their recent papers. But uh, we end up touching on a lot of related topics without quite getting to that original goal of mine. There's a lot to ponder among what we do talk about, but I just want to touch briefly on what I found to be uh, some common ground between their two papers. And although we don't fully explore this in our conversation, it may be good to have in the background as you listen. Okay, so Jess's paper is titled Forms of Explanation and Understanding for Neuroscience and Artificial Intelligence. And part of her paper is focused on how explanations work and differ in neuroscience and in AI, and how we might unify them. So Jess proposes to focus our explanations on classes of phenomena that are common between the functions that AI and humans perform, um, defining the proper scope to which explanations apply. Okay, Now, Catherine's paper uh, is titled 
From Implausible Artificial Neurons to Idealized Cognitive Models, Rebooting Philosophy of Artificial Intelligence. Now, whereas Jess's idea focuses more on how explanations are related to phenomena, part of Catherine's piece focuses more on how models are related to the target system that they're modeling. And basically, Catherine suggests that it's, it's not a direct relationship between the model and the system, but instead is mediated by a specific kind or aspect of a phenomenon. So both the model and the target system instantiate this specific aspect, and that's how they're related. That's how the model and system are related. And so when we use models to explain some system, we need to keep in mind that they're doing it through some simpler or more abstract aspect or kind of both the model and the system. So these are two subtly different ideas, uh, but what I find in common between them is their concern with the, the reach or the scope of an explanation or of a model. Anyway, that little introduction doesn't suffice to fully articulate uh, the issues that they are dealing with um, in both of their papers, which they expound upon more at length. So I encourage you to read their papers, and I encourage you to do it in tandem, actually, because they're also filled with uh, history and uh, philosophy surrounding everything that we discuss and that more fully build the cases for the arguments they make. Um, and we do discuss a lot of different topics along the way, uh, including th the difference between explanation and understanding, as per Hank Direct, um, whose book on scientific understanding I link to in the show notes. So the show notes are at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 110. 110. All right. Happy explaining and understanding to you out there. Thanks for listening. I've never started an episode um, talking about knitting, but that's what we're going to do here. Uh, is there is there some secret like underground neuro AI knitting society that I need to know about? Oh my God. If such an underground society exists, I definitely need to join. And if it doesn't, Catherine, we should really start it. I haven't got my invitation yet either. What is the connection? So, Catherine, you you had one. You were looking at like Morse code uh, related, like related to patterns for knitting. Is there a connection between the, the the patterns in neuroscience and the and creating these knitting patterns? And I'm sorry if these are naive questions, but it's because they're coming from a naive person. I mean, we could spend probably two hours on this, but <laughs> since you ask. Yeah, I mean, I had those tabs open mainly because like we'd been talking about this and, and my preparation for today mostly consisted of like looking at knitting patterns and blog posts about knitting and coding. <laughs> I don't always have four knitting tabs open, although I did have to share my screen once teaching recently and I had a whole bunch of macrame uh -oh. tabs open and I was just sort of hoping that nobody noticed. Yeah, there's a few ways that they're connected. So one of the kind of stories is that um, like codes were passed through knitting in a bunch of cases during during wars, and it's that there's sort of two basic stitches that look different, and so you can encode things by alternating those stitches. And then I think the well, there's more than two stitches. There's a bunch of different stitches, and so you can make patterns and sort of whatever base you want using those whatever number of stitches that you want to have in your your project, but there's there's two basic ones that are the usual ones. Along the neck here, there's like alternating knit and purl, which are the two basic ones. Which makes a rib. Yeah. A rib. Um, yeah. It's kind of maybe hard to tell because there's all I also alternated colors. Um, 
but did you make that? Yes, and there's another connection. This is great for an audio I'm, podcast. <laughs> that I'm demonstrating. So there's, as your podcast viewers cannot see, but you can see there's this sort of stripey pattern uh-huh. of black and white, and this is a, a self-striping yarn that's usually used for socks, and this is one that's supposed to look like zebra stripes, and I bought this. As a result of seeing a talk at the Turing Centennial in Cambridge in, I think, 2012. And there was a talk about how Turing had figured out a bunch of the math of animal markings and how they're sort of Uh like these repeating patterns that have like kind of like a basic, I don't know, biological code at the the base of them. And and then I, I thought during this, this talk, like, oh, you must be able to use this to make like self patterning yarn. And so I decided that like I was going to try to like figure out how to do this, but then first I searched like does this already exist? And of course it already did exist. And there was a like a series of of yarns that made various animal patterns. So there's this zebra one that I ended up buying and then like a cheetah one and there's a whole bunch of others that are sort of less impressive, but you can make like if you know the width approximately of the thing that you're going to be knitting, then you can make something that will like make a particular pattern by just having the, like the yarn change color in regular sort of intervals. Jessica, do you, I don't know who knits more, but, and, and we don't need to break this out into a huge <laughs> uh, rivalry, but uh, is there something uh, about knitting that, for instance, do you get ideas from knitting? Is it a generative process or is it really something in the background that you do, like where ideas come because you're doing something um, that's pleasant and fairly mindless? Or is it really a generative sort of process? Uh, for me, it's probably more the latter. It's more like um, I think knitting can be almost meditative if the pattern is of the right complexity, where you do have to pay attention and maybe you have to count. Um, but a lot of times it's just, you're just responding to what's already there. And so you, you just have to have some basic attention on it and then you can mind wander. And I find that one of the most pleasant states is just getting into like a knitting flow. I think when you're working on like really, when you're working like on research on a PhD or something, you know, it's so hard to make progress. But in knitting, every movement gets you one you know, measurable step closer to finishing some project. And that, like, very constant feeling of slowly moving towards a goal is, I think, also satisfying. During my my master's was one of my sort of very obsessive knitting phases when I should have been done already but wasn't. I mean, I think that's a really good point to transition into, like, what I want to ask about next because, I I mean, I was going to say my entire... I was going to say career, but journey, let's say, in trying to understand minds and brains really can be probably best summarized as discovering how little I understand step by step. And and uh, so wondering, am I making progress? And then going down a road and realizing, oh, the, uh, that's not the right road to go down. Or, oh, now I really don't understand what I thought I was pursuing in the first place. Um, at the same time, it's impossible for me to trace out sort of the evolution of my own thinking because it's almost like I came from a, a blank slate with like a few assumptions that were wrong, right? But I didn't like come into neuroscience and AI with some preconceived 
uh, steadfast, staunch notions about what I thought consciousness was and what I thought brains do and minds and, you know, AI, for instance. Um, so this is an unfair question is, is what I'm saying. Uh, and so maybe, Jess, we'll start with you. How would you characterize the trajectory of your own thinking um, about brains and minds, but also about explaining and understanding and what these things are? I would say that my uh, ideas have changed a lot. I think I had a similar experience to you in that, you know, you, you gradually re- realize how, how little you know and maybe how little everyone else knows too and uh, that you you don't know how what you're working on fits into uh, something bigger. Like presumably science is a collaborative project and we have some some goals we're working towards. Um, and at some point, I think I, I felt like I really didn't have good answers to why is what I'm doing meaningful in any way or how does it contribute. But you, you started off with that sort of uh, assumption that what you would be doing would contribute to the, like the larger meaningful picture and then realized over time that maybe it wasn't. Is that how it went? I mean, I think I had probably pretty... I wouldn't say I was like, I didn't start as a, an especially good scientist. Um, I think that I, you know, you learned how to do sciencey things, like how to collect brain activity and how to run some software. Um, and that's a lot different than like being able to think about, you know, theories and how to build theories and how to actually make progress towards something. I don't think we make progress in science just by doing sciencey things. But yeah, I think I had no idea what I was doing. And now, now you have a crystal clear idea. No, no not at all. But um, uh, I do think that reading more uh, a philosophy of science was really helpful for me to at least figure out how to pose some of the questions that I was struggling with and realize that there are you know, some well-formed answers to some of them. Maybe they're not, you know, even if they're not the perfect answer, just being able to look at a selection of answers, I think, um, gives context. Yeah, so how have my ideas changed? I think I've become increasingly pluralistic in the sense that uh, recognizing that not only are there many different questions that we're going to want to ask, but there are probably many different ways to answer those questions and um, that I'm not looking for the right approach. I'm looking for some set of justifiable approaches. And yeah, that'd be like one main takeaway. Is that a freeing feeling, realizing that pluralism is okay? Or is it more of a letdown that there isn't one answer? Mm, I, I think that there... There is the risk of pluralism devolving into kind of anything goes, which can be problematic. Like, we don't want the the message to be, like, it doesn't matter what you do. So I think that there's still some... It's not easy just because we embrace pluralism. There's still kind of difficult... It's still difficult to find, you know, what do we, what do we want to do? <laughs> so, but... But you kind of started off as a, entered as a scientist and have moved a little bit more toward philosophy as part of that. Is that no? 
Well, I'm, I definitely cannot claim to be a philosopher. I have no formal training in philosophy. Uh, my primary research is as, as a scientist. But I mean, in your interests, like the, the evolution of your interests and what you feel might be needed to make progress and to fit within the meaning of, of everything. Right, certainly. So I definitely came into it as a scientist being like, how do I uh, build computational models of you know, perception or cognition and ended up reading about, you know. What is a model? Theories of explanation. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Catherine, you came, is it fair to say that you came in more from the philosophical side? Not really. So I, I hardly took any philosophy at all as an undergrad. Um, like I took a bunch of logic and that was, that was about it. Yeah. 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 That like who gets to call themselves a philosopher and like, at what point did that happen to me? Like that's, that's sort of an odd question. I, I started are being, you, are you a philosopher? Like now I think I, I, I have to say that I am. <laughs> like it's still a little bit uncomfortable because the, the kind of things that I do are, are not really traditional mainstream philosophy. So there, there are probably some people who would call what I do not philosophy. And um, yeah, I mean, the, the desk rejection I got for a paper recently probably was on that basis that I didn't actually cite any philosophers <laughs> in, the, in the, the citations. But yeah, no, I started out thinking that I was going to be a math major or a computer science major, but I sort of constructed a kind of like a liberal arts program for doing that, despite the absence of that option being available where I was <laughs> studying it. So I ended up doing cognitive science, which just sort of like as a something that would fit together the things that I wanted to take under something that they were going to call a degree. And then... When I was applying to PhD programs, I was undecided between neuroscience and philosophy. So I was applying to both. And it was mainly that, you know, someone at the Montreal Neurological Institute sent me an annoying email that I decided not to go with that option and like, to go become a philosopher instead. But that wasn't even really my my intention either. I, I found it really odd that people started calling me a philosopher as soon as I arrived there, having been a computer scientist until that point. And people asking me to, you know, like justify like, why is philosophy an important thing to do? I'm like, what, why are you asking me this? I'm not, I'm not one of them. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, my, my trajectory looks a little chaotic probably on paper, but I think there's like a few pretty common like patterns that are all sort of overlapping each other. So one is from, like really believing in the project of AI and like I like this sort of like existential quest that I want to understand the the mind and the brain as like a way of, you know, knowing how I work and then becoming like a little less convinced that that's something that is possible to do or like a possible to do in our lifetimes or that a little bit less sure that the ways that we're going about it are are actually moving towards that kind of a goal. And then also the going from being kind of like a reductionist to being critical of that kind of approach. Yeah. And then also the, like, can I do science? Am I not any good at science? That kind of um, <laughs> quest too, like where it's very easy before you've actually tried doing it to, to criticize 
the approaches that people are taking in the lab and you can always find, you know, some problem with an experiment that someone's done, mm-hmm. but then actually trying it yourself and nothing working for, you know, years and then realizing that the the way that it's actually done in the lab is so much harder than it looks like on paper and a completely different kind of um, you know, thing that it, that it seems like before you've tried it and then and then kind of going back and, and taking on this this role of critic again, but from like a different perspective where I'm trying to find in the science like what what is working and, and how you actually find truth in all of these imperfect experiments and also the way that all of these imperfect experiments like don't fit together cleanly at all and like what what do you do with that and you can't have this sort of you know clean monolithic picture of of how it all flows together oh my god you're just describing the the depressing uh phd <sighs> experience of most of us like oh my god it doesn't work and none of it makes sense and how do i make yeah from armchair philosopher to practicing attempting practicing scientist yeah but I, I mean this goes to like uh for me anyway so so i've you know been reading a lot of philosophy lately um but it's important that the philosophy is embedded in things i'm interested in in scientific questions that i'm interested in because that's what keeps me driving and uh and reading more and learning more because without that and without my own whatever expertise i have without without my own experience doing the science um I think it's easy to get lost in, like you're saying, in, in untethered and just start thinking about things uh, and, and not end up anywhere. And so so I can go pretty far um, at, until I feel like I'm just kind of spinning my wheels, right? And learning about models as fictions and then where it's really not connected at all to what I'm interested in, in the doing aspect, the pragmatic aspect of, of doing the science. So there's always this question of, how much philosophy is the right amount for me to be spending my time on? And I'm not even in a lab now, so I can spend my time on whatever I want to spend on. Um, so, Jessica, how much? How, how do you break down your uh, time and effort in the philosophical side of things versus the practice of science? Um, yeah, so during my PhD, I probably, by some people's opinion shouldn't have read any philosophy at all, you know, like that wasn't required for what I needed to do to finish my dissertation. But it, at some point, you just it just felt like the most important questions were there that I couldn't stop. I couldn't, um, like, it just felt like I couldn't continue the science until I had, like, at least some basic grounding in like, why am I even doing this? You know, like, I feel like everyone goes through a phase in the PhD where it's like, how do we even know anything about Wait, anything? one phase? One phase? <laughs> well, phase? You're, you're lucky if it's a phase, I guess. Like, right. you're lucky if you yeah. come to terms with that, right? So, yeah, that phase for me was like, okay, I need to, like, figure out how to even talk about this. Um Moving forward, I'd, I'm not sure. Like I, you know, I just had this paper out where I, um, you know, I had some things that I wanted to say. I'm not really sure where it's going to go from there. Um, in the sense that, you know, I'm I'm not trying to de- develop a career as a philosopher, but I would love if my future involved um, a f- philosophical component. I don't, yeah, I don't always see. It, 
how that would work. Like I would love, you know, scientists, we, we collaborate with people, you know, so I would love to have collaborations with philosophers um, moving forward. Um, but it seems like philosophers write a lot of like single author papers and I don't know like how much room there is in that kind of like in between philosophy and kind of meta science and mm. um, yeah so I'm still I'm still learning and figuring out how that can be a component of my research career moving forward. So is this like empirical philosopher camp? Empirically informed philosophy. Empirically maybe? informed where the history and and the practice of doing science is directly enmeshed within the philosophical issues being discussed. Yeah, some philosophers also talk about sort of the naturalistic approach, thinking of philosophy as somehow uh, subsumed within some scientific practice. I'm a little bit unclear on exactly the the history of the evolution of these ideas, but um, yeah, I think a lot of scientists who maybe don't know very much about philosophy um, might have certain ideas about what philosophy is and the methods that are used. Like I've had some people tell me like, oh, that's just some people's opinions and they're not even scientists. Why would you listen to them? And so in the paper, what I was trying to do is try to give people a sense of like the, how the methodologies have evolved and how like contemporary philosophy uses an array of methodologies from anthropology, sociology, psychology and, you know, uh, case studies and uh, field studies and, you know, to try to give people an impression that philosophy is not just, um, you know, looking at science from a distance, that there are um, a variety of methodologies employed. That it's not just... <laughs> Catherine, do you, do you get the rebuttal, hey, that's just your opinion? <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever heard that one, but... <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, not, I, in the, I, not in so many words. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that that would be a fair criticism of a lot of philosophers, but those don't tend to be the people who would want to be embedded in the lab in the first place. So the yeah, maybe you should ignore the people who have no interest in what's going on in a lab if you're a scientist. Um, but there are within philosophy of science just about everyone either has some lab experience or at least reads scientific papers. Um, so has some idea what they're talking about. Maybe all philosophers of science to get their degree must spend some time in a lab to crush their spirit. That's what needs to happen. <laughs> okay. Speaking of crushing spirits, maybe, maybe we can start off with just uh, the difference, Jessica, between explanation and understanding. So, I mean, I guess I'll just leave it there because you, you write about this at length in your paper. Are explanation and understanding different? Are they the same thing? I'll let you just answer and then we'll, we'll uh, dig down into it. Um, yeah, so how, how different they are kind of depends on what, you know, which specific notions you want to discuss. But the, I think if there's one thing I want a listener to take away from this, would be the distinction between the um, subjective sense of understanding. So uh, an, an individual's experience of having understood something. 
as being distinct from scientific explanation. And that when we're thinking about goals in science, what do we want to achieve? That we don't just want to achieve this subjective sense of understanding, that that's not the extent of our um, scientific goals. Because if it was, we, you know, we might, we'd be happy with sort of delusions that mm. provide us with some some sense of understanding, even if they have no, uh, you know, relationship to to reality or or uh, the things that we actually want to do uh, with the products of of science. Was it Hempel that conceived of understanding as this subjective feeling, personal, uh, oh, I get it sort of experience and. And then later through, so in the paper, you write about a lot about Hank Direct. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but um, his sense of understanding, I think his book's called Understanding Scientific Understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he makes a, a distinction between understanding and explanation in that you have to have explanation and it has to be intelligible in order to derive understanding. And, and then, like you were saying, there's this whole pragmatic notion of understanding as in uh, using understanding to to then move forward and do things with that understanding. Yes. So we could say that uh, kind of maybe more traditional philosophers of science focused on building um, theories of scientific explanation. Um, And these theories were intended to be objective in the sense that they weren't kind of specific to, um, you know, a, a community of scientists or a, mm. a social historical context. It was just an objective relationship between the phenomenon to be explained and its explanation, codified in some some description, probably. But direct this goes back also to what we were just talking about in this, the need for expertise in some domain to claim an understanding. Right, and we don't want to be able to say, "Well, you don't understand because I'm an expert." However, it's the experts that have the domain knowledge that can look at an explanation and decide whether it's intelligible, whether whether it makes sense, uh, and then counts essentially as an understanding. So it almost takes that expertise to make a judgment on understanding. Is do I have that right? Um, yeah. So direct kind of offers this. So maybe just to back up a second. Um, I mentioned that maybe more uh, classical philosophers of science imagined explanation as this objective thing and kind of like dismissed um, like the role of maybe these pragmatic factors in kind of serious mm. theories about explanation. Um, there are alternatives uh, to that view. Um, there are more pragmatic theories of explanation. But Direct is really saying we need... Wait, first I wanted to say that... Um, like someone like Hempel would would basically equate scientific understanding and scientific explanation that you achieve the the cognitive state of understanding when you are in possession of a satisfactory explanation so he would say genuine scientific understanding is what happens when you possess this satisfactory explanation of whatever phenomenon it is you want to explain. So basically, once you have the explanation, you're you're done. You also have the understanding. It's the state of uh, being once you have the... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Distinct from the kind feeling. of this subjective 
feeling of understanding that doesn't really have to do with having an explanation or not. It's just you feel like you understand. Um, and then direct says, like, actually, we need a theory of understanding that's um, independent of the explanatory strategies that are being employed. That, you know, you aren't guaranteed to uh, experience understanding just by virtue of having this explanation. That in order to have that explanation, you actually need to have these intelligible theories first. So he distinguishes between what he calls uh, understanding a phenomenon is sort of like this explanatory understanding. And then kind of understanding a theory is basically what he calls intelligibility. So you have um, intelligibility is the, the values that scientists attribute to theories that permit their, their use. And so it's not just a property of the theory itself, but of the community of scientists that are developing and trying to use those theories. So it depends on the, the skills and background assumptions of those scientists. And do you, with that understanding of understanding, gosh, I just said <laughs> that, um, uh, does that does does understanding remain your goal personally? So so direct says that understanding is you know the central goal of science in general. You know his work isn't focused on deep learning and a, and um, or, or AI and neuroscience at all. His is a very broad, just scientific understanding account. Uh, maybe he needs to get to a lab and uh, have his <laughs> spirits crushed. But um, I think he does probably because he is more on, in line with this practicing scientist. And, and practicing philosophy uh, joiner. But um, back to my question, I mean, it, so with that new newer sense of understanding, do you agree that this is like the main goal of uh, science or and or you personally? Yeah, so I find it pretty, I find it difficult to argue against direct that what he calls understanding phenomena is uh, the main goal or like a primary epistemic goal of, of science, or at least a primary goal, whether it's epistemic or pragmatic, it's a whole other thing. Right, but right. Um, but in order to do that, you, you need these explanations. So I feel like it still comes back to um, the importance of explanation in science. And um, for me personally, sometimes I feel like the conversation in neuroscience, and especially in this neuro AI space, I find that it does tend to focus on this intelligibility part where people mm. are concerned about how, how intelligible are deep neural networks as, as models. And I feel like that ignores, um, kind of this explanation side where it's like, you know, we don't just want intelligible models. We, we also want to explain things. And specifically because intelligibility is this, this changing thing, this context-dependent, skill-dependent thing, um, I'm sort of willing to be loose with that a little bit. Um, and especially in the case of artificial intelligence, um, I can see our intelligibility changing. You know, we're, we're making a lot of progress in how we um, understand uh, deep learning and... Um, artificial intelligence more generally. And so I, I guess I'm a bit optimistic that, you know, intelligibility is something that's, that's currently in flux. And so I don't, um, I don't find that like a great argument 
for why we, you know, shouldn't explore the, the use of deep neural networks as models in, in neuroscience and, and cognition. Yeah, I guess uh, just to uh, restate the, one of the central issues in comparing deep learning with brains is that deep learning nets are uh, very complicated as our brains. And so, you know, we turn from, instead of trying to use them to explain brains, well, now we need to explain them and make them intelligible before we can make that step of comparison uh, to explaining brains. Is that, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of things going on here. So like the, I think the original project of AI was along the lines of, like, we don't have any idea how intelligence works or how thinking works. But if we could make something that thinks, then that would tell us something about how it works. That would be like a theory of of thinking or a theory of of intelligence. And and that's kind of playing on like an older idea of of what an explanation is or what a theory is, um, where a theory or an explanation is something more like a proof. And like early AI people were like pretty explicitly saying like, yeah, the, the program that shows this behavior that is intelligent, that is literally like the proof of what we're trying to explain. So like just as, you know, writing down a, a bunch of steps sort of showing that one thing follows from another, the program kind of also does that. It's a bunch of steps showing how, you know, the intelligent behavior falls out from whatever you, you start with. But that's, that's not really the way that, that we think about explanation anymore. Like that was sort of shown to not be a good way of understanding science. Um, Partly that just having this kind of like knowing the syntax and having it flow in sort of the right formal ways doesn't guarantee that you get a meaningful result. Um, and also just that that's not the kind of thing that we're, we're looking for in science. The, the meaning of the symbols matters too. Mm. And I think this is all getting kind of tied together in ways that no one really fully understands <laughs> right now in, in this space. And and I think like Jess's paper is is helpful for like pulling out this like w- this question of like why are people in deep learning doing the kinds of experiments that they're doing like what is what is the scientific goal behind this? Yeah, so like maybe we don't just need to make like the deep learning network that performs the behavior and just say okay we've got the explanation now it's the program. But if we if we if we can't have any insight into what the program's doing or why it's doing it or how it's doing it. Like one question is like, is it actually a good theory of the behavior or is it sort of accidentally doing it in a dumb way just because it has lots of data? But even putting aside that question, even if we think that like, yeah, this thing that plays chess or whatever, it really understands something or, it, you know, it really is generalizing or it really is doing whatever sort of intelligent thing you you, you want it to be doing if you don't like just having the the syntax just having the program that's not enough for it to be an explanation under under sort of more contemporary views of scientific explanation because you need to be abstracting at the right level where you're picking out the relevant things and and that sort of thing i guess the difference might be something like 
you could say that you have a theory of some kind of physical system if you have like the locations and the momentums of all the particles in the box. There isn't more to know in a way, but if you don't understand like why they're moving in the kinds of currents that they're moving in, then in some other way you don't understand it. You don't understand like, you know, why there's a vortex or why it's heating up or or why, you know, whatever other kind of macro phenomenon that's going on is is happening. You just have like a list of of numbers. And so there's that concern too, I think, with even if you believe that a deep learning network really is sort of doing vision or doing object recognition rather than doing like a parlor trick, then there's still this, well, like that's not all that there is to an explanation. And maybe this understanding piece that it being something that could be understood is part of it. That's maybe one way of putting it. I'll, I'll jump in here because I just want to jump to the um, to, to what I see as the common thread between both of your uh, recent papers here. Um, and, and that's basically, and, and you guys will correct me, um, but also this is steeped in my own um, <laughs> coming to terms with how I view explanation and in terms of what deep learning is doing and what brains might may or may not be doing and what minds are is uh, the importance of the target of the explanation. Um, because even in your example there, like the why is the why of the um, the balls are moving in different directions. Um, that is a different question. It's a different target of explanation almost than the um, being able to explain it in terms of some sort of coarse graining, like it's just it's a uh, it's heat. Thermodynamics is heat, right? So I wonder if it's probably if it's useful. And we could either go down the um, mechanistic sort of explanation road, which maybe we should save. I'm, I'm thinking, or it might, if it might be useful to just talk uh, and and put on display, Jess, your f- uh, claim that we should be focusing on phenomena specific things to explain and relate it maybe to Catherine, your uh, claim that really what models should be doing, models are an instantiation of a quote unquote kind, and we can talk about what a kind is. And that kind or aspect is one kind or aspect of the target system that you're modeling. And that's a mouthful and, and probably needs to be unpacked. But would you guys agree? Do, do I have that wrong, that there's that common thread, that it's really the target of explanation that uh, seems to be um, a key to to our, our to, to moving forward in explanation? There's a section, I think, of, of Jess's paper about the different grains or granularities of, of why questions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's getting at the same kind of thing. You know, what is the thing that you're explaining? What kind of granularity of why question you're asking? Well, for instance, you just said if if the model, I'm not sure, I don't remember your exact wording, but if such a system was, quote unquote, doing vision. And this is one of those things where you realize, oh, I, I thought I knew what vision meant. Now I don't know what vision means. Or the, the pluralism of what doing vision is depends on <laughs> depends on what you mean by doing vision, right? And I, I feel like, and I haven't, you know, I need to study this more, but I feel like different approaches to explanation are in, one of the major differences is that they actually have different targets of, of what they're trying to explain. And you can almost say that the pluralism has more to do with the target of explanation than the phenomenon almost. Well, the phenomenon being the target of explanation. Now I'm off the rails. Jess, please. Um, Yeah, so I would say that 
how one conceives of what it is they're trying to explain might, you know, bias them or might, it might lend them to a particular notion of explanation. So if you really think about uh, cognition as, you know, the result of some dynamical system, you know, the brain is a dynamical system and we get our actions and control through uh, uh, perturbations of those dynamical systems, then you're probably going to want to construct dynamical explanations. Um, and if you're thinking about the brain as an information processing system and you're thinking about inputs and outputs, that might lend you to think about like more functional explanations where you're decomposing some computation into some sub-operations or something. Um, yeah, so what I say in the paper is that you know, we, we sometimes talk about, you know, how do you explain the, the brain or how do you explain cognition as if there's going to be, you know, one answer to that question. But um, the brain is involved in a lot of different things. You know, some of the phenomena that we might want to explain in neuroscience look more like biophysics or, you know, biochemistry. Um, and some are a lot closer to the things we do in, in psychology um, or, you know, computer science. Yeah, so I try to say that, you know, is there a way of thinking about the phenomena that we want to explain that, like, what, what really ties the explanations together is the class of phenomena. And can we imagine that uh, artificial agents and, you know, natural intelligence might both be um, instances of similar phenomena, in which case they might be explained similarly? It doesn't mean that the explanations themselves will be the same or similar, but that the form of the explanation, so like what what constitutes a satisfactory explanation um, or what can constitute a satisfactory explanation um, should be shared. So like if you if you think that this functional explanation really works for explaining some uh, perceptual behavior in in monkeys, and then you, you know, train a network to do the same thing. Does the same kind of explanation um, hold in the uh, artificial system as well? Is it worth tying this to let's, uh, you know, the, what everyone talks about is the uh, hierarchical uh, deep learning networks for vision for the, uh, that are supposed to match up with ventral stream vision. Is it worth using that as an example, or is that too uh, esoteric? You think? I ask because my experience, so so there's this dangerous um, sort of road that I go down, right, where now we have these models that can categorize images extremely well, and the activity uh, among the units through some transformations has a lot of similarity to the um, neural recordings that happen in monkeys, for instance. It, it, and it's awesome, right? It's like re really great that the, the units look like that. And then I worry because one of my reactions is, oh, well, that means I'm not actually interested in, in how to categorize an object. I'm, I'm interested in something more. And I worry that every time uh, an advance is made in AI, I'm going to, uh, there's, there's a name for this, um, for this uh, phenomenon where a person says, yeah, but it can't do X yet. And then until it can do X, and then you can just go on ad infinitum until like it explains the entire brain. And then where you left saying, oh, yeah, but it can't do X. So I worry about that. But at the same time, I realize that maybe I'm not interested in object categorization per se in this example. I'm interested in 
how that functions in the larger system to do X and, you know, how it fits within a larger behaving system. And then I realized maybe I'm not interested in intelligence. Maybe I'm interested in life. What am I interested in? And then and then I have to finally go to sleep at some point. Oh, that, that seems like progress, doesn't it? Doesn't the, don't you feel like you are reformulating the questions that you want to ask in a productive way? Yes, but I don't know if it's productive because it just kicks it down the road. And then I'm still left with, well, what am I actually interested in? And it feels like progress. I'm just not sure that it actually is progress. Hmm. My take on this is that early on, people couldn't imagine any way that that something like vision could be implemented. We had no idea how it could be done. And so the approach of like, let's try to build something that can do the same thing would at least give us like a candidate hypothesis this is, for, this is for back how to it Newell, could be done. Yeah. Newell and Simon's work. Like, yeah, with, with the original thing that you're talking about. Yeah. And like at that point, actually being able to do something that looks intelligent was like an amazing result that no one had done before. And so even though like now it seems like, yeah, of course you can program something that, you know, adds or, or whatever, like it doesn't seem impressive anymore, but at the time, like it was, we don't have any hypotheses for how this is done. And so if we can like build something that does it, like at least we have a hypothesis and that's like a major advance. And and I feel like we're doing like a bunch more of, of those moves that we, we can't imagine how we could implement, you know, this sort of more detailed kind of versions of, of the task. And then, or like being able to do a bunch of different tasks or being able to do this task, but in a way where you generalize or, or, you know, whatever kind of additions you want to add to it, that it, it's sort of equally amazing that we've managed to do something that, that matches the results pretty well. And, and I, I, I see this in terms of inference to the best explanation that if you, if you've only got one candidate, then that's the best explanation. And that's sort of the state that we're in. And it's not, like that isn't a the, bad way of explaining things. The deep learning models, you mean? Is yeah. There, for instance, yeah. So if you had like a few different, you know, kinds of AI that all were capable of doing the same thing and they all had different structures, then you'd have a problem. But we don't have that. So like maybe there is just this coincidence where it can only be done in one way, but maybe not. I mean, we do have variation within these types of sure. things, right? Like we have different architectures and people do do those kinds of experiments where they plot, you know, how does my, um, you know, how do these different architectures fare? Or like if I add this element of biological realism, um, if I add recurrence or if I add this kind of weight sharing, how does that change the correspondence? So I feel like maybe they're, it's still in the, could still be analyzed in the context of inference to the best explanation in a kind of like model comparison um, framework. But I think it's still going to be limited if all we're doing is just trying to explain brain activity, like statistically capture variance in brain activity as much as possible. Um, that's not what I... Like I want to explain the... Um, I want to... The, the target of my desired explanations are not just, you know, some, some variance that's associated with the stimulus. And I think, I mean, people are appropriately critical of the sort of approaches where you just like throw a lot more data at it in order to get the details more correct um, without 
being concerned with the architecture making sense. So I think like people are going about this in, in a couple of different ways, both trying to get the the phenomena to match better and also being concerned about whether the architecture matches and like whether the architecture needs to match exactly or not. That's, that's one of the things that's sort of up for grabs, I guess. So you're both steeped in the uh, modern mechanistic mode of explanation. That's kind of the most popular, I'd say also receives the most criticism, which kind of, uh, um, cements it as the most popular or most well-known maybe mode of explanation these days. Uh, and I think, Jess, in your paper, you make the distinction between um, explanation in neuroscience and explanation in, in AI, uh, at least coming up, you know, that they have different threads, essentially, um, that neuroscience, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that neuroscience generally has tried to explain constitutively the constitutive uh, mechanisms, which means how the parts are doing like what they're doing. Um, so if you, you talk about the neurons and their activities and how that relates to the phenomena to be explained, whereas in AI, you, you I believe, talk about etiological or causal mechanistic explanations, which uh, focus on how it came to be that way uh, and um, from, well, a causal story about how, you know, the architecture sets it up so that when you uh, run, run it through that architecture, um, it triggers the response through the system. And I didn't explain that well, but this, but what I want to tie it into is this modern notion, which you also talk about in the paper of, you know, how do we understand deep learning and maybe the way, uh, so people like Blake Richards and the thousand authors on that one paper and, um, Conrad Kerding and, and Tim Lillicrap talk about under trying to understand maybe what we need to do instead of focusing on the activities of the neurons, maybe we need to focus on the architecture and changes in the architecture and how that changes the activity, the output of the network. Also changes in the objective functions, which how you're training the network to compare to some objective. And thirdly, focusing on the learning algorithms that you're implementing in the network and changing all of these. Um, that is a causal story about how the network is changing. Is that a just an awful summary of, of um, that modern approach? There's just so many caveats that it's so hard to, um, so like the, the point about neuroscience maybe caring more about constitutive mechanisms. Um, I know that that's like a very broad stroke and like a lot of people will disagree with me, um, with that, that there's, I'm sure that there's lots of neuroscientists who, uh, write etiological stories as well. I can name one. I think, well, maybe, well, I'll just interrupt you real quick because I was wondering what your thoughts were on someone like Paul Cheesek's phylogenetic refinement approach that really looks at evolution in a step-by-step -step process and the evolution of function and how evolution changes. Um, that seems more like an ideological causal kind of story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are both in the context of causal mechanical explanation. And I try to, I mean, yeah philosophers, maybe I shouldn't do this, but I try to talk about the mechanisms sort of like independent of this whole, like without commitment to this causal mechanist framework. Um, because like probably people would say that the, the sort of what, what the, the deep learning approach to neuroscience, maybe we can't call it rightly causal mm. in that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's abstract. It's often a lot of, um, mathematical, uh, relations. So just to say that there's a lot of caveats, hmm. that it's, um, 
maybe complicated, but the main point that I was trying to make was just that the the invitation to a deep learning approach to neuroscience, uh, I was suggesting that it could be analyzed as this invitation to consider these etiological stories about what mechanisms produce um, for phenomena that maybe we'd previously been searching for constitutive mechanisms. And maybe that's part of why that those kinds of explanations or those kinds of stories feel unsatisfying to certain neuroscientists, that they're looking for a story that is going to be about how neurons and or like parts of brains in some way, like neuro, could be neurochemicals or parts of cells, how they work together to realize whatever it is that you want mm -hmm. to explain. The learning story, which is really more about some structural mechanism that sets up the conditions such that a triggering mechanism, like presenting uh, an image to an animal, triggers the phenomenon that you want to explain, like the recognition of the object in that image. Is it my training as a neuroscientist that makes me feel personally uh, like there's something missing or uh, unfortunate if if that's what all I had to go on were the the you know the, the learning objectives the the learning algorithm the objective function and the architecture there's something definitely satisfying about it in one sense but it also isn't the way I sort of naively originally thought of think of well brains manifest consciousness and uh, that I can't really tie the architecture to that or something you know like the the mind aspect what I really want is a story about how all of, all of this activity is realizing, in your term, realizing mind. I don't think you have to give up your desire for constitutive mechanisms. I think you can um, acknowledge the value of both. But part of the story is that, uh, at least in, in these modern, the ideological approach that we're talking about here, is that it's just too hard to um, to grasp, to, un to understand the constitutive mechanisms. Let's move on to what we can understand right now and push that aside for later. I mean, is that a valid... Do, do, you, do you find that disappointing? Or are you satisfied with that? Or, you know, is it even a valid way to proceed? Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that, that that point is... Like, we can put it into Dirac's language that they're talking about some notion of intelligibility. Mm -hmm. That is what is intelligible right now. Yeah. And so I... I think that that's very justifiable to say, uh, this is what I'm going to focus on right now because that's what seems to have the most promise. And I think that, you know, we want a diverse group of scientists making those decisions and coming up with different answers. Um, I don't think we want everyone to be doing the same thing. So, you know, I'm happy for there to be different answers to that question. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit optimistic on the intelligibility side that I feel like we are developing new conceptual tools that might enable us to have something like a constitutive story or, you know, different types of etiological stories. But I, I, I resist a little bit the, like, we'll never do this, so don't even bother. But at the same time, you know, I'm going to, we should all be doing what we think is most um, 
kind of promising. And if we have a bunch of people doing a lot of justified science, then we'll make progress faster than if we all do the same thing. Yeah, I'm wondering whether the this this sort of bigger picture where you might want to understand not just one person's cognition or you know all people's cognition, but all primate cognition or all you know cognition, whether artificial or um, natural or whatever the the other option is, <laughs> then then maybe the ideological picture starts to make more sense because maybe the thing that they all have in common is something more like an architecture that allows this thing to develop rather than the details of the, the, constitu- the constitutive picture. And maybe there's even sort of a, a gradation between the two. So an architecture is, it could be seen as constitutive just at sort of a higher level. Um, whereas what you'd maybe be more satisfying to a neuroscientist as a constitutive explanation is more just like a more detailed ideological picture in a way. So it's like filling in the details of the ideological picture for that specific organism in that specific situation and that very particular brain region at that particular time of day, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and, and the sort of older philosophical questions about AI are all focused on this, like what is intelligence in general? What is it not just in us, but you know, what would it mean in, in anything? And, and that, that was sort of why people were, I don't know, 30 years ago or whatever, drawn to functional explanations rather than more constitutive explanations. Catherine, can we bring in, can we uh, elaborate a little bit? Since we haven't really described your account of modeling and how models relate to target phenomenon through kinds, would you mind just kind of explaining broadly um, that framework and so we can bring it in? Because this is, I think, the common thread and I want to know why I'm wrong thinking that these are very similar sort of conclusions about what's needed. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, I mean, Batterman thinks of what he's doing as saying that the kind of explanations that he's talking about with minimal models are not mechanistic. But my move, I guess, is to is more of a unifying move where I, I think that to be mechanistic, something doesn't have to be constitutive in the sense of like being about the the gory details that it can be still be constitutive while being about like abstract kinds of of things that are interacting um and they're not abstract in the sense of being sort of like in you know the realm of ideas they're so i instead of saying abstract i I try to say generic to to Hmm. distinguish that um so generic is something that's it's still physical, it's still instantiated, but it's um, your, what you're pointing out about it is something that is more general than, than detailed. So um, like an example would be like, I'm sort of a very particular individual, but I'm also an animal and there's like an animal sitting here. Like that's something that's true, but that's more like generic than saying like this particular human with this particular history and um, you know, makeup is, is here. And so if you, if you allow mechanistic explanations to deal in, in that broader kind of thing, which I don't see any reason not to, then you can kind of unify these where, um, generic kinds of things are interacting with each other in the same sort of way that constitutive explanations work. And you can have these explanations 
work at various levels. And so you can have it be about just a, a bee, or you can have it be about insects, or you can have it be about animals in general, or you can have it be about intelligence in general. And I, I don't see like really strict divisions between those different kinds of explanations. I think we're still sort of doing the same thing. Two, so you said when you're talking about um, abstractions or... Generic. Did you say generic? But you said they're abstractions of something physical and instantiated. So what about, like, like in, in machine learning, we have a lot of, you know, machine learning theory we're working with, really mathematical objects. Something like learning rate. So, like, the learning rate in a learning algorithm, um, it's going to be, a, like, a critical feature in many explanations for, for how this system works. Is that an abstraction of something physical? Yeah, I mean, the learning rate would be instantiated in some sort of set of numbers in memory in your computer and or some you know, ways that the program works. Um, but then, you, yeah, you can talk about that in a more general way when you're talking about more than one program that all have this this similar kind of feature. I don't know if that answers your question. In this example, are we talking about learning rate as the as the thing to be explained as the kind, or is the learning rate the mo- within the model? I was thinking about it as a component of a mechanism, mm-hmm. and whether or not it can count as that if it is like never instantiated no. in a computer. So, like some machine learning theory, like deep linear neural networks. In cases where you don't have to actually run the experiments on the computer, you can just write down the math and you know what's going to happen. Can we still talk about mechanistic explanations in machine learning theory where you're not putting anything on a computer is an open question that I have. Yeah, I kind of struggle with that one too. Um, and I'm, I'm tempted to say that if you... So even if you're not writing anything down, you're not actually putting in a computer where it's sort of like, you know, physically compelled to go through the steps of your, your program. Um, if you're assuming that you're still sort of following some kind of mathematical rules, even, you know, when you're thinking about it, then that you could see that as something just as mechanistic, um, just like you're sort of simulating the, the program in you know in your wetware. <laughs> Are you saying that you can't essentially can't avoid somehow physically instantiating it? Certainly, you can avoid it. You can just not do it. But <laughs> um, if you're doing it just as a as a theoretical exercise, you're, you're still going through the the steps of assuming a certain kind of mathematical sort of rule that you're going to follow and. I mean, you you are free to not follow the rules. You're free to, you know, make mistakes in, in the way that you're doing it, and and that's sort of different than something that's instantiated in in either a computer or in like a an organism. But if you assume that you're going to be following the rules, then in a way you are also instantiating something that's in the same class of of thing as what you're thinking about, I guess. But that I think is like pretty controversial and I'm not, not sure I'd want to 
hang my hat on that. Yeah, maybe we're getting in kind of kind of the yeah. weeds of this. Like, um, I feel like when I talk to like machine learning researchers about how they think about, you know, what what explanations they might be providing, it does seem like it's in the it's in the math. It's in some ability to to write it down. It, not in not in every case. As in, in some cases. And I, I struggle to figure out how to, to fit that into what I know about, um, explanation in neuroscience where I feel like that's maybe less the feeling. Is the, go ahead. Well, just that, like, that feels like an opportunity to me that if we could, um, have a better understanding of kind of the differences between explanation in these different fields that that might inspire um, new ways of explaining in a kind of unified science of intelligence. Just backing up, one thing that I actually want to know if you guys have uh, thoughts on this is how off I am in thinking that your arguments are have this common thread, and maybe it's just my central interest in trying to understand what it is I'm trying, I'm interested. So, so here's the thing. My little journey, I've realized, has been one among other things, about trying to figure out what it is I'm actually interested in knowing. And that's, an, that's a, a humbling kind of experience to think, well, what I'm interested in knowing has nothing to do with what I originally thought I was interested in knowing. And so my own target of explanation, in that sense, has changed over time. Am I wrong in thinking that the, the crux of arguments that you both make in your paper, the ones I'm focused on at this very moment, um, Catherine arguing that uh, that it's the kind, the aspect, the aspect of something, which is an, an instantiation of something from the target system that you want uh, that you want to explain, um, and that you instantiate that aspect in a model, that thing, that kind, as the target of explanation. Is that how similar and how different is that from Jess your conception of? Um, the need to focus on specific phenomena that then can be addressed through different aspects of artificial systems, natural systems in in certain conditions, etc. I see them as compatible. Yeah, you should just listen to Catherine. and She's probably saying what I should have said. (laughs) And we're done. No. All right, well, maybe what we can do then is um, and and so I you know I'll point people obviously to your papers um, because this stuff is somewhat endlessly fascinating to me, which is a problem because then you, you just end up doing philosophy all day, and that's not a problem for you, Catherine, because you're a philosopher, obviously, uh, and whereas Jess can always just say I dabble in philosophy, don't take me seriously, I just dabble. <laughs> She's nodding. That's right. So so given your backgrounds and sort of how you got to where you are now. Um, what I wonder if you guys have advice for anyone kind of coming into the field. I mean, in one sense, it's the most exciting time ever, right? Because we have these tools in deep learning to help us what we really think we have a purchase on exp- explanation moving forward, or at least, uh, Jess, you express your optimism, right? That we're getting a grasp on on something intelligible that then we can actually, you know, sink our teeth into and, and move into better explanations. Um, on the other hand, there's a lot up in the air about what we think we do and don't understand. And, um, and then, you know, obviously trying to understand the system that we're using to understand, uh, our, the target, the AI system we're trying to understand so that, um, we can even 
use that to understand brains and minds. Uh, I'm wondering if you guys have any advice on anyone kind of coming into this field, uh, wherever they're coming from, something that maybe would have benefited you had you known. Catherine, let's start with you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I studied machine learning 20 years too early and just had really bad timing. <laughs> um, so don't do that. Well, you had mentioned because uh, just the other day we, we chatted really quickly and you had mentioned that you were not only machine learning what you said now that you were studying too early, but you were studying the uh, bias uh, and fil- and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, so policy issues in AI issues that are pre- that are that are at the forefront of conversations today. The dangers, the ethics—that's the word I was looking for. The ethics of AI, and that's a lot of what you do um, now as well. But but back then you were uh, interested in this, and no one was talking about it. You you could have just stuck with it, right? Instead of uh, well, I'm I'm giving you I'm I'm planting the advice that I think you should give to people, right? <laughs> your your advice is not to do things too early. Is that was that the summary? <laughs> no, that, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not. It's more like I don't know that you can really distill much very good advice out of my experience. It's more like a, a set of misadventures that, through like a series of accidents, ended up working out. Like one thing that I think that Jess mentioned earlier was that reading philosophy was something that she was sort of told that she shouldn't be doing. And that's maybe a common thread that the thing that sort of led me to having a job now was doing something that I had been told that I was supposed to not do. So, um, you know, writing things that aren't sort of like real publications. When I finally decided to to quit academia, that was when I allowed myself to to do that. And then that one piece of popular writing was like the single most important thing for my career development, like by a, a wide margin. Can you point to what you're referring to? So, so also, this is the first time you mentioned that you quit academia, and now you're back in academia. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit. Yeah, I quit, and then now I'm back. <laughs> yeah, like it, this was still back a couple years ago when, like, philosophy plus AI was was not really a, a viable career plan um, before this sort of strange shift happened where it's sort of the only viable career plan in in philosophy. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I wrote um, like an op-ed for the Globe and Mail, the sort of national newspaper in Canada about AI ethics basically. And yeah, I mean, that was like ridiculously sort of a door opening thing. Like, academics and other and and loonies and like all kinds of people were (laughs) emailing me with like opportunities both desirable and like wildly undesirable as a result of that and yeah I mean just it was really kind of shocking that like the thing that I did only because I was quitting was turned out to be like exactly the right thing to be doing and that you know a few steps later led to me ending up back in in academia and what lesson is to be learned from that, though? I don't know that there's there's like a real lesson there. <laughs> Things don't always turn out the way you expect or like, I mean, you could come up with a lesson like, you know, if you're doing something in grad school that everybody thinks is weird, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not valuable and isn't going to become like the thing that everyone cares about five years later, 10 years later. But I don't think that that's like generalizable advice. Like 
sometimes that's not going to work out. I can think of specific examples, and I won't share them, where I was at a talk with a fellow graduate student, and I thought, why why are they doing that? That no, <laughs> that's not going to uh, lead to anything. And then and now looking back on it, I think, oh, that's why they were doing that. I don't know if it actually led to anything, but I look back and think, oh, okay, I get it now from this different perspective where I am now. Um, where I was there, it didn't look like a promising route, but where I am now, and oh, okay, I understand why they're doing it. I'm trying to think of like what you know a listener would want to uh, <laughs> wouldn't want to hear. Well, I should quit and do something different and see what happens. You know? Yeah, I mean, it was really just a like a series of accidents. So I I worked in policy, but then there was a change of government, and so the funding left, and so then I ended up back in in like a, academia because jobs had suddenly started to exist and. AI ethics, and that was what I'd sort of decided to do instead when I switched into policy. Well, so Jess, this is your—you're now starting. Is this your first postdoc? Yep. So I'll just reveal you. So, so you're doing a postdoc in uh, Chris Summerfield's lab, uh, who's been on the show, uh, been on the podcast in the past. First of all, what do you think of Catherine's non-advice? And then, do you have uh, advice for people as well? Yeah, I mean, I I was trying to think of like a generic lesson, but they um, they almost sound cliche, you know, like don't be afraid to take risks and uh, follow your passions. That's You're kind special, of yeah. <laughs> but I think there is something to be said about um, allowing yourself to do what you are compelled to do and um, being kind of aware of, you know where does your motivation for different things come from? How much of it is external and how much of it is internal? And, you know, letting that inform your decisions about, about what to do. And just because something's completely internally motivated doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. Is there something you wish someone had told you going into uh, academia, going into studying the various things that you studied that would have been helpful? Yeah, I mean, I, there's things that I did hear that I've kind of taken to heart. Um, like a, in working in interdisciplinary fields, there's sometimes maybe people distinguish between sort of breadth versus depth. But there's some people maybe who go really deep on one topic and um, other people who their specialty is that they have broad knowledge in several fields. And I think I really identify as somebody in the, the latter category that my primary creative work in academia is in cross-disciplinary synthesis and being able to kind of find relationships between ideas in different fields. And of course, I still hope to have some some deep knowledge about, about things, but I'm never going to be as deep as somebody who like just focused on, you know, statistical physics and that's what they do or whatever, you know? So, um, Kind of figuring out what are you trying to do in that sense, I think, can be helpful. Maybe I can distill something out of that because I, I mean, I'm probably sort of paper thin in terms of my breadth versus depth um, <laughs> balance, and and I think a lot of advice that people get about academic careers is is to go the depth route to find a specialization and and go deep on it, and to hope that you were lucky in choosing one that is a good one. But I think that there's room for for both, that you can be a breadth person or a depth person and that 
trying to be a depth person when you're more naturally a breath person is not going to work very well because you'll you know you'll burn out or you're you just won't be interested anymore but yeah i mean looking at just sort of other people's careers it's there are lots of breadth people too who end up being successful i think it's easier to succeed in terms of finding a position and keeping a job do you think it's easier as a depth or breadth person and you have to choose one it's a random crapshoot either way you look at it <laughs> Have a famous advisor. Like that's the only advice you can really give. I don't know. Be lucky. That it's so random. Yeah. But part of luck. So I would say serendipity, right? Because Do good work and be lucky. <laughs> I mean, I feel like there's an obvi- the obvious answer would be depth, though, right? Because there's these there's these silos in academic institutions that have names on them, and if your degree doesn't have that name on it, then it's it can be. My impression as someone who hasn't really applied for those jobs is that it can be pretty hard to get into those departments if, you know, you're not a deep person in that field. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to get hired. Well, I won't say anything hmm. <laughs> in case someone's listening. <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel like there are challenges there. If you really want to be an inter- interdisciplinary person in figuring out, like, which silo would I actually want to be in or, you know, finding research institutes or centers where you can have joint affiliations. And that seems like a challenge. Yeah, I think it's, it's harder to be a breadth person because um, the way that all these things are set up is yes. designed for everyone being a, a depth person. And yeah, so it's, it's harder to get most of the jobs that are out there if you're not really specialized in the right things and it's harder to get grants probably and it's it's harder in a lot of ways yeah but it is at least possible to to do the other option maybe i'll I'll just bring it back to at the last moment here to the notion like direct's notion of understanding and um and intelligibility that it takes sort of specialists in the field right to to consider something intelligible so there's another cliche is like well you want both right you want breadth and depth um jess you used the word synthesis and i and that's breadth and that synthesis i think is much harder than people probably uh appreciate because to do good synthesis you have to have some depth in those in the various fields that you're synthesizing and that's so it's synthesis sort of demands breadth and depth um i guess what i'm saying is it's hard this is all hard <laughs> but wonderful and great also i suppose we'll end on a high note do you guys have anything else to add or should I just wrap up then? Um, yeah, I don't know. That At least I feel like I benefited a lot from working with a lot of different people who thought differently and that that helped me to be critical. I mean, I think that's pretty, it's pretty common these days that people seek kind of, um, you know, quotes revision and people get internships and there are opportunities to, to work with um, different people. That that um, having people who think radically different, though challenging, can maybe be good in the long time to try to try to work through those conflicts. Well, guys, thank you for being here. I'm going to let you get back to your knitting now. Uh, be honest. Uh, who's going to be? Are you, are you guys going to be knitting like five minutes after we talk here? I have a, a little bit of sewing that my, one of my kids is demanding that I do, but I'm going to eat lunch first. I'll definitely be knitting tonight. It's kind of. Uh, basically a daily occurrence. 
I will. I will knit. Well, thanks for taking the time and talking with me, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stair.